Hey listeners, long time no speak. It's me, Carl, and welcome to Dismantling Injustice, brought to you by Envision Freedom Fund. If you're a new listener, on this podcast, we dissect issues facing New Yorkers, including immigration and criminal legal system reform, racial and economic justice, human rights, and much more. And this is season two. So for our premiere, we're so excited to bring you a special conversation we're holding where we're going to look back and think about the future of safety, particularly as it pertains to black communities. And for this conversation, we're joined by all, well, at least most, of the black team members here at Envision Freedom. So I'm excited to welcome my esteemed colleagues, Zoe Adele, Sally Israel, Angel Parker, and Nicole Triplett. Our other colleague from the diaspora, Mustafa Jamale, is unable to join us because he is in Albany helping us get a bill passed through the legislature. But um, you'll hear more about that soon. Anyway, welcome, everyone. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Great. So Yeah, glad. Yeah. Um, so I thought we'd just jump right in and um you know i guess i'll forewarn both our listeners and all of you that some of the stuff we're going to talk about might be a little bit heavy um but um i guess i wanted to start by asking all of you or any of you that's um you know willing to answer what's on your mind um with regard to criminalization um and violence um and safety and trauma um when it comes to black communities um, particularly in light of the shooting in Buffalo a few weeks ago, and of course the second anniversary of George Floyd's murder. And anyone can kind of jump in. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's a lot of anxiety and disappointment. Like, literally, you can't tell if we're in 1955 or 2022. You can find almost, you know, this type of open season and literally where there's people can do this and not even feel like anything's going to happen to them. And I'm not saying something should happen to them. I'm saying, you know, we have people who literally, when they get pulled over to cops, they're worried about whether or not they're going to be shot or not. And someone can literally walk into a place with a machine gun automatic rifle and not worry about dying after killing people. I mean, I think that that is, I mean, time and time again, in addition to the fact that we literally are under assault, there's also this, this, this idea of feeling alienated and like just disconnected from anything that happens because you, there's nothing that says you shouldn't do this. Right. I mean, going back to the church shooting, now, this one is like there's a pathway for someone to do something like this and literally, you know, go through a legal process, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, and, and, and maybe even get off in, in some ways or not get the worst penalty. I think that that is where when we look back at the war on drugs, where even when it wasn't violence involved, it was like every little thing, the whole goal was to like penalize as much as possible. Right. If you got pulled over in New York in, in New York City in 1990 and you had drugs in your car, there's a strong possibility you're going to get beat up by the police or assaulted by the police or injured by the police. And it was like a given. And again, when you don't the how clear it is that that, that is a racial thing 
to me is like hyperbolized when you see stuff like this happen. Mm-hmm. Not even what happens is the response. Anyone else? Yeah, and I think I share Solly's sentiments that of frustration um, because. You know, hearing from elected officials and um, and folks' response to what's going on, it's just very frustrating. The so-called solutions that are being floated um, as a response to a lot of what we're seeing, um, and that you know looks like just more criminalization and criminalization that we know is going to impact black and brown communities um, the most. And yeah, it's, it's, it is just, I think, frustrating um, the responses from our elected officials and other, you know, government officials, um, that we're not seeing, I think, what a lot of communities that, like, we work with um, need to feel safe. Um, I think the answer that we're hearing is more criminalization, more money to police, um, and, yeah, I think just more of the same that isn't going to change what's happening. Yeah, I think I, I completely agree. I think the frustrating part, like Sally and Zoe have said, is like, like all these, first, like the steps after and our response to it is just yet another reminder of our country's high tolerance for the assault on black and brown people or the high tolerance for um, the terror that, that um, so many of us live under. And I think personally, I just find myself not being able to process things like that, like things like when you, you see a headline, um, like what happened in Buffalo. Um, I didn't watch the video, but like I've even, I've had family members and friends tell me what it felt like to see the video and see the coldness and just just the way that he was able to just walk into a grocery store and just sh- shoot to kill just people who were just going to, the, just existing. And I think, um, yeah, it's hard for me to process that type of inhumanity. And we all are aware of like the history and the through line of racial terror in this country, how much it's like so embedded in our DNA, so much embedded in every generation before us that it's been here. And that's just the way our country's operated. But to see the response only like doubles down on, on the permanence of, it feels like the permanence of it. And so when you're processing it, you don't want to get into a space of like hopelessness, but I don't know how to process it without that because I haven't seen a time where there's been a sufficient response. And so, you know, I, I just feel like, you know, when you, I don't have children, but when you're talking to like, you know, people and the, the younger generations coming up where you, I was told all these steps that you could take to get to safety and it's, it's not working. They're, they're insufficient, forget justice, but like, the safety part is insufficient to be black and brown to exist in this country. And so I, 
I don't know. I just what I I would say is just a frustration to process. I don't know how to process things like that, and it, and it's a gross numbness because it's just been so embedded in our DNA. And I I'm trying to figure out how not to just stay in a space space of like hopelessness and despair. Yeah, I definitely share that frustration a lot. Um, and I think something that I've been thinking a lot about, especially as we kind of approach, like like you said, the anniversary or second anniversary of the uprisings of 2020 is just that, especially when thinking about last year in 2021, right, when um, Derek Chauvin kind of got the conviction and the jail time and people were celebrating. And I remember like abolitionists were trying to explain why there was not excitement from um, our kind of political camp, if you will, at the time. Um, because yeah, and as we're seeing now that individual convictions don't equal systemic change. Like it doesn't, one cop being sacrificed by the system to legitimize the criminal legal system doesn't actually create safer conditions for black people anywhere. If anything, it's just so that the law enforcement and the legal system can pat themselves on the back and say, okay, we did it now stop, stop protesting, stop resisting. And now we're seeing a lot of the fallout of that. I think a lot of frustration I feel related to that is also the way that the government has used George Floyd's name to like increase police funding and increase police presence um, in the name of like, oh, we're responding. But it, we all know, especially us as Black folks, that this is just going to create even more violence in our communities. And I think to, especially to Sally's point, you know, like it's not a coincidence that at the same time, the state is kind of increasing violence on black communities with like the tough on crime era that we're seeing this, this kind of individual like vigilante violence toward black communities because the state is basically signaling to everyone that it's okay to perpetuate violence against black people. That we, not only do we support this, but we're gonna do it too. And so I think a lot of frustration around the response of the government and also just knowing at the time that, you know, the, the conviction of Derek Chauvin wasn't going to lead to systemic change and being told that we were not being positive enough or we weren't being realistic enough. And now here we are and we're seeing more violence and we're seeing like nothing that has been solved since then or nothing positive that has come out of that for the masses of Black people. Thank you, Angel, um, and everyone. Dismantling Injustice is brought to you by Envision Freedom Fund. Envision Freedom is a New York-based nonprofit organization that works to dismantle the unjust and oppressive immigration and criminal legal systems while meeting the critical and most urgent needs of individuals impacted by these systemic injustices in the present. You can learn more about our work by visiting us online at envisionfreedom.org or by following us on social media. Just like as a segue uh, from Angel's response, which I totally agree with, but I was just wondering, like, what, if anything, do you think has changed um, in the last couple of years, um, particularly in regard to policing, incarceration, racial justice, um, and other issues affecting black communities. And I guess like to just hone even more in on the question is, 
do do you all think we've moved forward um or have we gone backward are we in a worse position than we were um pre-2020 are we about the same um have has anything actually changed I think I come to the conclusion that not much has changed. It looks like it's changed. I started thinking, I don't know how this, it dawned on me one day. I think I was thinking about what sits at the center of everything that happens with policing and around these issues. And I, I really think it's all a matter of fair politics, who has the right to be afraid and win. And I think until we have that conversation, we're going to just like keep recycling what we do. Uh, you know, Literally at every case we've seen, it was a question of, you know, who, when you get pulled over by a police officer and you're afraid, you really don't have the right to be afraid. And your fear might make him, him or her or them feel afraid. And they have every right to be afraid. And at that moment, you can die. Uh, and I think it, and it happens around the board, not even just with extreme cases like death. All these encounters are driven about who has the right to be afraid. And I think that in the end of things, even down to what happened in Buffalo, right? You know, that replacement theory is, is, a, is about a fear of somehow losing power that you have, right? And you have, a, and, and there's, there's this question of, do, is that a legitimate fear to have? And can you act on that fear a certain way? And there are ways that the state and certain, you know, bodies in this country kind of like validate that fear, which enables people to like commit the kind of violence that was committed. I think that until we have that conversation, there's no way for things to change. We're just going to have different mechanisms of, you know, basically assaulting the autonomy of others because of that fear. Nicole, I think you were trying to get in there as well. Yeah, I love how Sally said about the 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 reaction to fear and who, um, who gets to have that fear and who gets to react to their fear, that fear, I, I, that really resonates with me. I think just to take it on the, the other side, I think it did push the conversation forward in, in a message shift where there did seem like in messaging, not in the response, um, in messaging, it felt like a racial reckoning and being able to highlight and unearth historical and systemic nature of what happened to George Floyd. I was surprised that the, the narrative shifted and not in, in, in the narrative, not immediately responding to George Floyd, what happened to George Floyd as a one-off case or an exceptional case or an extreme case, but also, but a case that all the factors surrounding that and the harms that, that led to that being uh, or prompting and sparking a conversation about um, employment, education, um, environmental justice issues. And so it seemed to be like a racial justice through line and using what happened to George Floyd um, to spark conversations in, in all other spaces of society in which black and brown people exist and have been targeted. And so I, I felt hopeful in that. I did think it pushed us forward in the conversation because I still always thought that we haven't had a real racial reckoning conversation about um, the racial injustices of our country. But I do think, like Sally said, that we haven't been pushed forward in, in actually reckoning with the injustices. I think we're still falling back on efforts that recycling efforts that have failed in the past. We're still um, trying to put a Band-Aid on it. We're still trying to preserve structures that have been flawed from the, from the jump, from the, the outset. 
We're still looking at like, especially when it comes to criminal legal um, issues, we're still looking at like, you know, train, like add more money to police budget to do training, hire more black and brown people, um, uh, maybe ban certain degrees of, 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 of uh, escalated like reactions or like of harm, but we're not really, we're really not trying to grapple with the root causes of it. And that's where I feel like we're still suspended. And in some ways we're delegitimizing um, the movement and, and still using, relying on the same responses that we've done in the past. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Nicole. And I definitely think, especially if we're talking about kind of like the national narrative, I definitely think it has gone backward. I feel like we're kind of back to the like tough on crime, lock them up, like take control of our streets type of narrative. Um, like even having public officials like blaming like drill music for violence. I mean, it's like just utterly ridiculous where the narrative has gone so quickly. But while that has happened, I think kind of on a national scale and with the powers that be, I think at least in my personal experience within the black community, I think there's a lot more kind of awareness that our political responsibility goes way further than casting a vote like once every four years. And I see a lot more appreciation and emphasis on community and organizing at the grassroots level. And of course, there are a bunch of like nationally recognized, well-known orgs that do great work. But I think I'm seeing a lot more appreciation for like the very localized, like small grassroots level organizing. Um, and I know obviously COVID has helped with that, has helped that appreciation as well, because I know like people in my community have been helped when it, whether it's vaccinations or getting PPE, like community orgs have really stepped up. And I also think another thing that I've seen that I consider a step forward is that I think people realize just how pervasive, maybe not to the extent, but at least a lot more, the police state actually is, especially when we think about like police in our media, police in our schools, police in our healthcare facilities. Like I see a lot more people talking about the pervasiveness and like just how many police um, there are and how many like services and just everything honestly is can be connected to the police or a cop can be placed there so i think we definitely like the opposition has gotten stronger with fear mongering and i think the national narrative has shifted backward but i feel like on a community level i see a lot more like whether elders or young people um grappling more with like the nuances of the fight that we're in as opposed to just oh well the killer cop needs to go to jail and that's it Yeah, I, I echo that. I think I'm seeing a lot more change on the individual level. I think similar to what Angel was saying about the grassroots, I think systemically we're in the same place. Um, the same people are still being incarcerated. The system is still doing what the system was built to do and built to target the same people. Um, but I do think that people are beginning to see, I think a little more than maybe two years ago, um, how the system works. And um, I think, unfortunately, recent events caused some of this shift. Um, and it is, you know, people shouldn't have to die for 
folks to um, to you know understand, I think, um, that the police, you know, are not there to prevent violence from happening, um, that they do cause harm to communities. Um, and I think, you know, that there's a lot more work that we need to do. And I think to Angel, to your point about the narrative shifting back to tough on crime, um, I completely see that happening, I think nationally and here in New York. Um, and I think there's, you know, a lot of work for us to do, um, for us to do in coalition and communities to have those conversations and um, move people because I think what a lot of people are hearing um, is what, you know, the police are saying, because that's all that's getting reported in the media. Um, and I think, you know, there's a lot more that needs to be um, told and, you know, a lot more of like the truth that needs to reach people. Um, because unfortunately, I think a lot of what people are getting through like mainstream news and mainstream media um, just isn't true. Um, and yeah, I think that I'm hopeful <laughs> that there's work that we can do to push forward, um, and, um, and do that much needed work. Um, but I do think, um, that in terms of, I think doing that like larger systemic work, um, we're, we have, we have a long way to go. Um, and unfortunately, I think that's, that's one piece where I feel like we are kind of at a, a standstill. So what do you find most disappointing about how our government um, is talking about and responding to issues of safety and violence these days. And um, I can give this a start because I almost, almost on a daily basis, I, I rant about our mayor, Eric Adams, and um, how, you know, like how disappointed I, I've been and surprised um, at him. And not surprised that, you know, he was a cop before he was mayor and he was a cop for many years. And so I didn't expect that suddenly he was gonna become an abolitionist when he became mayor. What I'm surprised by is that he, you know, like that his approach uses like the like really old school dog whistles to criminalize black communities in particular. And the, way, the ways in which he, you know, he talks about violence and he talks about drugs and the ways in which he talks about homeless people are the ways that, you know, that like, you know, that, that Giuliani talked about black communities in the 90s. And arguably the way that like, you know, like people in the South talked about black communities like pre-1980s. Pre um, and sometimes it feels as though he almost like, it's almost like a joke to him. He sort of like laughed it laughing at um, people that support criminal justice reform. Like, you know, like in the back of his mind, he's like, hey, I can get away with talking like this because 
I'm black. And so, haha, look, joke's on you. Um, and so, and I think, like, I guess where my disappointment comes in is that even after, like, the quote-unquote racial reckoning in 2020, it feels as though people are falling for it. And, you know, they're, you know, like, it's, we're, we're regressing. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where, that's where I'm disappointed right now. I think my disappointment changes every day. <laughs> but as of right now, while we're recording, that's what I'm most disappointed with. But um, what about others? Is there anything, like, particularly disappointing? I don't always disappoint with the government. I do get lost in where we are with everything right now. It's like there's this very real reality of the level of gun violence that's happening. And then there's these really, like, archaic approaches to talking about that, that we just, you know, for some reason, they're easy. They're like, you know, when, when you... I mean, Eric Adams has said everything but Super Predator and, and Wildings and Pack of Dogs, like a pack of wolves. Like, I... In all its actuality, he, he's, he's basically summoning the same type of ideas and perceptions, which creates, like, which creates the other in a way that can totally objectify half of our community and make it all right to, like, basically treat them less than human. I mean, that's, it, this, we, we've seen this in the past. Like you said, this is not new. It's been a staple, like you said, in other areas of this country. And it's coming on with the waves in, in, in other parts of the country, like the part of the country we live in. And that is like, how do we, you know, how do we tap into the mass sentiment of what's happening right now and make it look like we're doing something serious about it? And a lot of times it's, it's, it's about it being as simple, as simplistic as possible and how you color things. And I think the disappointment I have in most of our responses from our government, most of the responses from our government is, is, is the oversimplification of things about what is really happening and why. And if you oversimplify it, you know, it's easy to get everybody you know, route about I got a friend, he was convinced, and, he, and he, we did time together in prison. He was convinced that the reason why we have gun violence is because everybody was getting out because of the bail laws, the, the bail reform. And I'm like, yo, where are you getting that from? He was convinced that was the case, though, because he'd heard it. There's no reason why he was convinced by this. Like, we had a long, drawn-out conversation about why it didn't make sense for him to be convinced by this. But he was convinced by it. So I'm disappointed that we haven't had any serious conversations around this stuff that allow us to have real movement and what it means to change things. And that we keep falling back on the same discourses that have never made any sense, that don't make sense, and has never gotten us anywhere. As an aside, I was talking to one of my friends that's still a public defender in Brooklyn, and he was saying that now any, any like offense where like someone is accused of anything related to a gun, there's automatically a request for bail now. And, like, you know, of at least, like, $5,000. Um, no matter what it is, whether the person's, like, an accomplice, whether they had the gun themselves, anything related to a gun, it's almost, like, a very strict, like, okay, guns are involved, we gotta set bail. Um, and so that's, like, you know, that's just, like, I just wanted to add that on because it is sort of, like, going back to those super predator days. That's the part that I, it's just, it's, it's wild. Like, I, I think, again, it's hard for me to process because it's so irrational because now we're living in 2022. It's been two years um, since what people keep calling the racial reckoning. And you, so you have like a whole class of politicians who've been elected into office, like promote, like on the platform of responding to what we like, what 
seemed like a ground rule of support for, and I'm going to use police reform or, you know, um, pushing back on, on putting so much resources into law enforcement and prosecution and, and, and using bail. But I, so it's, it's so wild that you can't, you, like to, 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 if you want to rationalize it, you can't say it's a lack of awareness. Like these are the same people who ran on this platform. And to some degree, I'm going to say Eric Adams, like, even though he, he didn't, he didn't use, um, he didn't run on the platform that I don't think any of us would support, but he did manipulate the, the timing and, and, and some of the messaging to say that he's familiar with what it's like to to be beaten up by a cop. He said he's familiar with what it's like to be uh, racially profiled. He's familiar with stop and frisk because he himself was stop and frisk. But it's, but he used, he, he, he manipulated for his own gain. And so it's not that they weren't aware, but it's that they are, they ran on this platform and now they're in office and they're actually doing the opposite. And it's, that's, I think that's the part that's baffling. And I think the other part is like, um, and again, this may sound bitter, but like, I just, it gets to a point where I'm like, maybe we just, our tears really don't matter unless it, our tears, unless your response to our tears will get you some sort of gain. And that's what I feel like with the government. And I think that one of the, like a, I think a clear example of that for me was like um, the way that President Biden and his administration has dealt with things on the border. Like you can, you have a whole, like after the Ukrainian conflict started, which was awful, horrific, inhumane, I don't think anyone would, would deny that. You create a whole, you expedite um, the process to process in a humane, in a relatively humanely way, uh, immigrants who are coming from Ukraine, so that they can get across the border. Meanwhile, you're still, you're still caging, awfully treat. You know, you've stopped accepting um, people who are coming from Haiti, from parts of Central South America. You, you're still, you're still um, treating them horrifically, inhumanely. And I think, I mean, you can't say that it's anything but for race. And so I, I just think that to be able to have clear examples that are existing now, that the contrast is like apparent that we're talking about a racial divide and the way that we treat people is, is baffling. Yeah. So that, that's the example that I keep thinking of the picture of um, ISOP or, or border and um, I'm sorry, border officers like on their horses beating uh, Haitian kids and, and families who are trying to get uh, to this country. Meanwhile, you're, you're opening your arms to kids and families coming from Ukraine and you're allowing them to be able to come across the border and, and record numbers uh, in this administration. And you're, it seems like you're, you're taking the tears of certain people and you're trumping them um, above other tears. Yeah, it is making me mad even thinking about it. Yeah, I agree 100%, Nicole. I was going to say something similar that I think the most frustrating thing for me, at least from the government stance, has been like the co-optation that has happened. It's just felt really disgusting, like offensive doesn't even begin to describe like using mass death of a whole community for political gain or for increased funding for police. Um, and I think, especially like we've been seeing, I don't know if this is a New York City thing or if this is nationally, but the co-optation of terms like transformative justice mm -hmm. and like people saying cops can do like restorative justice now, or like uh, just co-optation of a lot of different things that 
abolitionists and also even criminal justice reformers have been saying for decades um, that became popular, of course, after the uprisings um, and that the political establishment has kind of co-opted to turn into their own meaning. And I think that's been very frustrating to see because a lot of these concepts have been developed for so long. There's been so much thought, community care, so much like history in a lot of these ideas. And they just so easily get turned into, you know, uh, a campaign like point or, you know, a way for someone to say, well, I'll fix that. But really, they have no intention on doing it. I think Eric Adams is a good example. I think we've seen some black district attorneys, black judges, black uh, like city council people across the country who have used the uprisings. Um, to get themselves elected or and then come in and not be actually serving those communities, nor even advocating aggressively for these communities at all. And I think a final thing I will say that has been more most frustrating and not to be a dead horse, but just to reiterate what Sali was getting at was just the fact that a lot of the responses that we've seen from the government have been tried over and over and over and over again with no results at all. And here we are, and they're attempting, trying to tell us that this is going to work now, even though it hasn't worked over the last 150 years. And I think, especially in the 1990s, while I wasn't fully alive during that time, there, I know that a lot of the rhetoric was like, oh, well, we're going to do the like prisons and the police thing now, and then we'll address the root causes later, but we just need to do this right now to fix it. And the root causes never happen. And here we are again, now 30 years later, the root causes are still not addressed and they're putting forth this same exact thing over and over. And it just, yeah, leads me to believe that there is no intention on ever addressing like, why are people so unbelievably afraid in their own communities that they are going to get guns that they know are dangerous, that they know could get them in trouble to protect themselves? What is making people that scared? And instead of addressing that, just demonize, pathologize and lock them up. So I think it's yeah very frustrating that we are never getting to the root causes and we're always just putting the same solution that's tried over and over in our faces. I'm really yeah glad that you brought that up, Angel. So I think that's what I was thinking of specifically Eric Adams and even our governor proposing, you know, co-opting transformative justice, co-opting restorative justice, violence interruption programs, and how they're going to fund these things. Um, not nearly enough. And I think I'm my main worry and something I think we should all be paying close attention to is a year or two from now when, you know, we still are dealing with the problems that we're dealing with now because there were no real investments in, you know, the things that communities actually need, like housing, education, um, non-police, non-carceral solutions that we're going to hear from the mayor and the governor. Oh yeah, well, we tried that mm. uh, and it didn't work because they invested, you know, pennies in, in the programs that we've been asking for. And they can use that to say that they did it, didn't work, and go right back to, you know, pouring all the money into policing and jails. Um, so I think that's something that I'm worried about keeping an eye on, just making sure that it's not, they're not just paying lip service to um, a lot of these solutions that I think our communities are 
demanding, um, you know, just so that they can say that they like check the box um, and did it um, to quiet folks in the future. Yeah, both of you talked about these police-led restorative justice efforts, and I haven't heard of those, and I'm just sort of like, what? That's not even, like, how is that even a thing? That's like, I, I just don't understand. Um, but that's just, you know, that's what happens, co-optation, um, as folks said. Dismantling Injustice is brought to you by Envision Freedom Fund. Envision Freedom is a New York-based nonprofit organization that works to dismantle the unjust and oppressive immigration and criminal legal systems while meeting the critical and most urgent needs of individuals impacted by these systemic injustices in the present. You can learn more about our work by visiting us online at envisionfreedom.org or by following us on social media. Okay, so my last question is going to be a two-parter because, um, you know, like, not this, this has been a pest, like a pessimistic conversation. I think we've really talked about the challenges, though. Like, it's, you know, like, it feels dark right now. It feels as though we're really up against this wave that's determined to bring things back 20, 30 years, um, both in New York but also nationally. Um, and so my last question, and you started to touch on this, Zoe, um, but it's two parts. The first part is, what should we focus on, you know, like, in light of everything that's happened, in light of, like, you know, we, we had this, you know, really, like, this entire season of mobilization a couple of years ago, and now we see where we're at. We've seen, you know, policy proposals move forward and then take, like, five steps back. And so my question is, where as a movement should we focus right now when it comes to crim criminal legal system reform? And, you know, like, you know, like, uh, if uh, to the extent that you're comfortable, like, you know, maybe let's try to get as specific as possible because we can, it's easy to say, like, we should focus on jobs, we can focus on education, we can focus on youth development. Um, but I think the challenge is that those words don't mean anything to anyone. Like, of course, we could always, every, we, you know, we could boil down a ton of different social problems to we need more jobs, education, and youth programs. Um, and so, like, you know, I guess, like, you know, just based on, like, folks that you all have talked to, things that you've read, um, or in other organizations that you're a part of, like, what are some of the things that you think um, are worth we as a movement really investing in and working to move forward and then the last part of that question is what brings you hope right now yeah i wish i had a definitive answer to the first one i don't know i, I think maybe, i don't know i think we need to do an analysis of everything we've been doing and start weeding out what really hasn't gotten us results you know, I, f I feel like we're also, I think in the movement, we also keep reproducing some of the same approaches. I think we've had, we've had hope in systems that just haven't played out the way they're supposed to play out for us. We keep talking about the government, but, you know, as uh, Nicole mentioned, like, 
there are people that we put in place that got elected on these platforms that are doing nothing right now. That we thought because they were so connected with the movement itself, we had a different result. You know, how deep, you know, we talk about systemic change. Like, how, how deep is it that when someone gets there, it's like everything is like just dropped as soon as they get into place. And I'm not talking about like Eric Adams. We have, we've had across this country people who really, really wanted to get in and do things. And when they got there, we haven't seen any results. We haven't gotten the same support from them. So I think that, I think now, even before we just talk about what we want to change, that's, that's, we need to do an analysis of what we've been doing and, and look at why things haven't changed. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a glamorous answer. I don't you know. But I think that, that, that we're going to have to start doing that. Like the same way, this is a policy thing. Like we have to look at the policies we have in place to like promote change and figure out why they haven't been giving us the results we want. And in terms of, uh, you know, the se- what was the second part? What brings you hope? Oh, what brings me hope? Oh, I think what brings me hope is, you know, I, I, I've been, lately I've been looking at a lot of social media. What brings me hope is there are, like, a lot of young people. I'm talking about, I seen a teenage girl, like, 13, at this, like, city council meeting, and she was, like, holding to the fire. Like, every, I mean, literally, you know, someone had gotten shot in that community, and she was just, like, saying how, you know, you want me to be a kid, but you won't let me be a kid because I have to deal with this stuff. And I just think that when I seen it, I shared it with a lot of people. I was like, this is, like, amazing the way she conceptualized, the way she related to what happened, and the body politic and the process that was taking place in front of her, she had it. I don't know, I don't know what they're doing in the after-school programs or whatever program she's in or you know, what her parents are engaging her with, but I was like, oh, we, we have some, the future has some bright spots. I know, we, you know, I know that Eric Adams held up a bunch of young people doing drill music. I'm saying there are also those other, the other side of that, which is there are, there is like, there are lots of young people of color that are totally aware of what's happening around them, totally engaged, and totally looking forward to like moving things forward with us in this work. And they don't want to be held up to any term, whatever age, or after they went to college. Like they're going to go through college and they're going to go through high school already doing this work like naturally because it's all around them. And that brings me hope. And, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll share that. Maybe I'll put that link. It was, it was, if you haven't seen it, and she says what, what her name is and how old she is. And I can't remember either, but I have it. That was very hopeful. I don't know why that Whitney Houston song, but I believe the children of the future came to mind. No, nah, it makes sense. <laughs> it made, it was very sappy when, when I heard it when I was younger, but I, when, I, when I saw this young lady, I was like, oh, this young woman, this young person. I was like, yes, this is a... Uh, I'm grateful that, you know, they're there. You know what I mean? I, this, this, I guess that's for me is what's hopeful. Anyone else? I like also want to give like the very like general, like we need to address people's like fears and the root causes, but that's not specific. Um, I was thinking about like an example of that is I know people have been talking about like the subways lately. And I know there's been a lot of complaints specifically that the mayor has put forth about seeing houseless people on the subways um, which could obviously easily be solved by housing them, but that's not what I was going to say. Um, I was going to say, I know for like me, my friends, people in the community take the subway. What is it that makes the subway unsafe? Is it because there's lead poisoning on the on the paint? Is it because when you go to a place like Chamber Street, it literally looks like a horror film set? Is it because the trains don't even come frequently? They're constantly stopping underground. Like when people say they don't feel safe in the subway, there's so much that the state can do to make it safer 
besides criminalizing and scapegoating whole communities of people. That's like one specific example of the broader like point of addressing the actual root causes of violence and people's fears. Um, and of course, like housing is definitely my, the thing I always go to because anytime I've experienced or anytime I've experienced or witnessed violence, um, in a, on a very massive scale or in a way that was particularly traumatic, there was always a need for housing somewhere involved in the scenario in my personal experience. And so I think housing is always going to be, whether that's co-ops, whether that is, um, like, uh, letting people stay in a lot of these abandoned buildings, a lot of luxury buildings that get built with no one with no one living in them for years and years and years. So I think those are examples that come to mind. I think what especially gives me hope during this time is, um, for one, my ancestors and the elders. I know it's corny, but I always like to remind myself that like we are not the first people to go through kind of a a regression or a dip in what we thought was momentum and that our ancestors have been doing this for years. And so we have to um, you know, keep going, keep fighting, keep the foundation alive, just like they did for us so that we can pass the mantle on down the line. And I think the last thing I'll say about what gives me hope, and this doesn't feel related, but is related, is seeing a lot of like uh, unionizing campaigns with these mega corporations. So like people going after Amazon and Starbucks and like Columbia University, I think has been really, really inspiring to me because I think I similarly view the criminal legal system as like this big, super wealthy, like impossible to penetrate like institution. And it gives me hope to see like everyday people, everyday workers going against these like multinational like conglomerates and corporations. And it reminds me that like, that is the way to do it like locally and together in solidarity. And I think I always like look to those campaigns and try to see like, what can I take from what they're doing and apply it to the large system that we're going up against too. Thanks, Angel. Yeah, I'm gonna say I, it's hard for me to answer the first question with any specificity that would be satisfying. I just think generally, we just need a real mobilization of resources. It's not contingent on outcomes or time, like short, like out, like short timeline outcomes that would um, do what Zoe said, like would justify why, justify any sort of excuse for why we shouldn't use resources. I think it, the argument should just be concluded that we communities wholesale need um, resources that meet their needs, their physical needs, their housing needs, their um, exceed those needs, and it there needs to be like no contingency on like cutting those resources off. It should, there should just be um, a, a, a sealed or permanent like uh, conclusion that that's just, that needs to be sustained. But I don't, I, I do think that it needs to be community driven. And I think that the problems have still manifested differently. And I think we don't need like a wholesale solution for every um, local area. I think, I think whatever is that solution, if there's a blank check, I think each community should have a say on what their assets are and what their needs are. Um, what gives me hope, I, I think Zoe and, and uh, Angel took it, like it's the children and the elders, um, but since the, since the, the Black, Lives Life, Black Lives Matter movement has um, taken hold, I think just the globalization and the, the effects on the diaspora has given me hope. Like when you, like on social media, whether it's in social media or when you travel to different countries, like having them refer to changes that have happened in their country or 
things that have come into being causes, um, organizations because of what they've seen here gives me hope because I do think, I think we're all connected. And I think what's happening in America is going to be affected by what's happening in Brazil, what's happening in Venezuela, what's happening in, in Ghana and in Nigeria. Like, I think we're all connected. And I think um, the movement wasn't just insular or isolated to the US. I think it sparked a movement across the world. And I'm hoping we can be able to leverage our narratives and stories and, and power to be able to help all of us out. Yeah, I, I know Carl and I feel like everyone said for the first question, um, hard to answer. Um, Cause I think, yeah, we're dealing with such complex issues and systems that we can't, yeah, it's just hard to give a super specific answer um, to how, how we address it and like solutions to put forward. Um, I think, and I think Nicole mentioned this to me, yeah, resources comes to mind. It's um, giving people resources, money, um, to meet their needs. Um, and, you know, I think the state, the country has the resources. It's just a matter of where the government wants to invest those resources and the priorities, um, and how, and how those resources, yeah, are prioritized. Um, and I think it really is just a matter of reprioritizing um and i think folks have said it many times but um who's you know whose safety matters and based on that where resources are allocated i think based on whose safety matters um more than others and i think yeah we should just focus on um bringing those resources to the communities that you know, historically haven't had that investment. Um, and I think as far as what gives me hope, I think it's working with everyone in this conversation and in the organization and, and all of our partners um, who are, you know, doing this thinking and this work every day, because these are, yeah, huge um issues systems that we're tackling um and the fact that you know we have spaces like this to have these conversations to have them with others who are doing this thinking trying to figure out um steps forward um is is great and also just seeing um conversations you know that are happening like in communities the response even during the pandemic with like mutual aid and things like that that are happening on the grassroots level. Um, and um, yeah, I think just being in that, in that community um, with everyone who's, you know, fighting for, for what we're fighting for is certainly giving me hope during this time. That's such a beautiful way to end the conversation. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say that, um, you know, 
I know that my first question was a little unfair because none of us have the city budget in front of us um, or any sort of policy assessment to be able to talk about specific um, programs that, you know, we want to see the movement prioritize. But I think that what everyone sort of alluded to is that we need to prioritize, you know, some sort of like democratic process where we engage, you know, communities in what they actually need that is beyond policing and beyond incarceration. Um, because no one, you know, no one actually talks to communities about what they need. Everyone, you know, there, there are a lot of assumptions that, you know, communities need more police or communities, you know, need these luxury stores. And no one, you know, no one goes around knocking on doors um, or bringing folks together on any regular basis um, to find out what they need. or and in particular, to take that next step and invest resources toward it. And so, um, you know, I think all of you sort of alluded to this, and, you know, I would agree that we need to, you know, we don't know the specifics, but we know that whatever it is, it really needs to be what folks that are most impacted want and need. Um, and I guess I am with Zoe. You know, what brings me joy is really getting to work with all of you and to work with, you know, and to know that there are folks like us out there that are fighting, you know, like we, you know, if anything, the last two years has taught, has really taught us who is on our side for the long haul, who really believes in abolition and believes in ending criminalization and, you know, wants to prioritize, like, you know, like, eliminating white supremacy and anti-blackness, and who, you know, who is willing to just give lip service, and who's going to support us when it's politically expedient. Um, but what brings me joy is knowing that there really are people that, you know, when they heard the call to defund the police, a light bulb went off for them, and it was like, oh, yeah, we should defund the police. Why are we doing this? Why are we spending money on this program that hasn't worked in over a hundred years. And that's really encouraging. It's an uphill battle, but you know, every time, you know, we do a big push, we get more and more people on our side. Um, and that brings me joy. Um, and so with that, thank you so much, everyone, for joining our podcast. Um, I think this was your first episode, Nicole. So thank you for joining us. And thank you for tuning in, listeners. Um, we're back. Season two is back. And um, look out for our next episode soon.